Today's reading is taken from the book of Revelation, chapters 8 to 9, and that can be found on page 1032 of the Church Bibles. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, with the prayers of the saints, rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet. And there followed hail and fire, mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe! Woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, 
but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels, who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year, were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire, and of sapphire, and of sulphur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire, and smoke, and sulphur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed, by the fire, and smoke, and sulphur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons, and idols of gold, and silver, and bronze, and stone, and wood, which cannot see, or hear, or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Thank you very much, Nathan, for reading that. Do keep that passage open. We're going to be looking at that together. And there's an outline of where we're going in our server sheets. So do make use of that as you would like. Also, um, there will be an opportunity at the end to ask any questions or make any comments. Um, so bear that in mind as we go through. But let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in uh, the Bible we never move away from the fact that you are the God who is truthful, good and sovereign over us. And therefore we pray now as your people, in response to your word, that we would listen attentively, uh, we would trust its goodness and we would be obedient uh, to your commands. For Jesus' sake, Amen. You might have thought that Revelation chapter 7 would have been a good place to end. <clears throat> I mean, look back at Revelation chapter 7, verses 15 to 17. It's on page 1032 of the Church Bibles. 
1032, Revelation 7:15. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every, away every tear from their eyes. That was the vision of the, the great multitude who, having come out of the great tribulation, will serve God. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Surely that only happens at the end of the world. And yet in chapter 8, after a pause, the sufferings start all over again. There's a load more tribulation. And if you were to look on to the end of chapter 11 and the seventh trumpet, we get the end of the world once more. What's going on? How do the seven seals of chapters 6 and 7 relate to the seven trumpets of chapters 8 to 11? Well, we're at a bit of a juncture now where the text itself raises these structural questions about how this book is fitting together. How do the trumpets relate to the seals? Now, one possibility is that we might that we might call one possibility is what we might call a serial relationship. That is to say that the seven trumpets happen chronologically after the seven seals. So, once the seven seals have occurred in history, only then do we move on to the seven trumpets. And what we would have then is a sequence of events. Now, this tends to be our default way of understanding what we're reading. You know, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And then sometimes you do get flashbacks, which do interrupt the flow and take you back to an earlier time. Now, one reason that we might uh, look at going in this direction is what we read in Revelation chapter 9, verse 4. Chapter 9, verse 4, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, if you were here last week, that should ring some bells. Uh, the sealing of God on his servants' foreheads. And if you remember, that happened back in chapter 7, verse 3. And so we might conclude that chapter 7, well, that's about when the servants of God are sealed on their foreheads. And then the seven trumpets, well, that happened after that, because those people were now clearly identified. However, another possibility is what we might call a parallel relationship. That is to say that the seven trumpets happen alongside the seven seals. So once the seven seals have occurred, the vision of the seven trumpets goes back and look at, looks at the same event 
this time in terms of the seven trumpets. And there is a lot in common between the seven seals and the seven trumpets. In both cases, there are seven. In both cases, the first four come in quick succession. In both cases, numbers five and number six come in more detail. In both cases, there is an excursus between the sixth and the seventh. And in both cases, the seventh concludes with the end of the world. But here we must stop. Because trying to line up the seven seals with the seven trumpets and map everything kind of one-to-one -one in some kind of one-to-one -one correspondence just doesn't work, doesn't fit. For example, it's in the sixth seal that the sun becomes black, the moon becomes like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. So that's the sixth seal. Whereas it's in the fourth trumpet that the same sort of thing happens again. And I take it that this attempt at lining everything up is not what we're supposed to be doing. We're not given another vision of seven so we can then combine it with the first and then make some kind of supervision. Rather, the second vision, the second series of seven, provides a different perspective in which we're to understand the events that follows. It's what's different about them that provides the insight. In other words, what we have here is not a sequence of events, but a sequence of visions. A sequence of visions that offers different perspectives on the same event. One interesting feature of the seven trumpets is the role that's played by the prayers of the saints. Because it's their prayers that appears to be the stimulus for what then takes place. Let's read again from Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. <clears throat> and I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Okay. A crucial thing to understand here is the logic between verse 4 and verse 5. So in verse 4, the prayers of the saints are being offered up to God. And in verse 5, fire is being thrown on the earth. What's the link? Are the saints praying for fire? What are the saints praying? The altar in view is the altar of chapter 6, verse 9, under which the souls of the persecuted saints stand. The prayer of the saints can therefore be nothing other 
than the saint's prayer in chapter 6, verse 10. That God vindicate them and punish their persecutors. Now the link between verse 4 and verse 5 becomes clear. In response to the saint's prayer, God sends judgment on the earth. Now, here's a question. Is this answered prayer part of the seals or part of the trumpets? Is the answer to prayer the end of the seals or the beginning of the trumpets? Are we still in the seventh seal? In which case, the prayers go up, the fire comes down, that's the end, final judgment. The main problem with this is that the trumpets have already been introduced in verse 2. And so you would then have this introduction to the trumpets sort of stuck between verse 1 and verses 3 to 5. But what about the answered prayer as part of the introduction to the trumpets? Although the trumpet judgments don't actually begin until verse 6. It may well be that the answered prayer serves both as a conclusion to the seals and as an introduction to the trumpets. And this is where we see the value. The first five seals were not seen as a response to the saints' prayer. Whereas all of the trumpets are. That is to say that the prayers of the saints are seen as the stimulus, stimulus for all what will follow when the trumpets are blown. In other words, God is already answering the saints' prayer for retribution before the final judgment. At the trumpets, terrible plagues are unleashed. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll notice that the plagues are reminiscent of the plagues in Egypt. No, the plays on the Egyptians as part of God's mighty acts of redemption of the Israelites. And the apocalyptic genre often reuses Old Testament imagery. So the more we become familiar with the Bible, the more the whole thing becomes less strange to our ears. Now, a distinctive focus of the trumpets is the harm that befalls the unsealed. And the key verse here is chapter 9, verse 4. When the locusts are unleashed on the earth, chapter 9, verse 4, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. These locusts do not harm 
those who have the seal of God on their foreheads. Only those who do not. And this is the progression of thought from the seals to the trumpets. At risk of oversimplifying, the seals focus on the suffering of believers, whereas the trumpets focus on the suffering of unbelievers. But what does that actually look like on the ground? How are we to understand the harm on unbelievers, but not on those sealed? I mean, it's not as if in our experience, everyone's been sorted out. You've got the sealed over here, and then you've got the unsealed over here, and then the famine, well, that falls on this lot, but not on that lot. I mean, that's, that's not our experience. The famine, if there is one, falls on both the sealed and the unsealed alike. But there's much suffering that's in common to both unbeliever and believer. The answer comes when we consider how the same suffering can have different effects. This is what the commentator Bill says. <clears throat> he says this the same trials sanctify genuine believers but punish unbelievers so that the trumpets are another way of looking at the seal trials let me just read that again the same trials sanctify genuine believers but punish unbelievers so that the trumpets are another way of looking at the seal trials. Beale brings a number of things together here. The trumpets and the seals are looking at the same trials, but from a different perspective. The perspective of the seals is how the suffering purifies believers. The perspective of the trumpets is how the suffering punishes unbelievers. Well, can we say any more about the nature of the harm inflicted on the unsealed? I mean, ultimately, the harm will be the final judgment and the second death. But we're not there yet. The first trumpets are only the partial judgments on the unsealed. And Bill goes on to suggest that part of the harm on the unsealed is ongoing deception. It's the idea that the harm that they receive is the ongoing deception that keeps them in their idolatry. This would contrast with those who are sealed, who are kept from deception and remain faithful. 
And he gets this line of thinking from observing that the descriptions of that which the trumpets unleash becomes increasingly demonic. I wonder if you saw that as Nathan read through. The angel in chapter 9 verse 1 sounds like either Satan or one of his minions. And Apollyon of chapter 9 verse 11 again sounds either like Satan or a representation of him. Now, if these creatures are demonic creatures, they are hardly going to want to cause idolaters to repent, but rather keep them in their idolatry. I mean, that's precisely how the chapter ends. It doesn't end with people repenting, but people hardened in their unrepentance and continuing in idolatry. Now, I think, I think this is really insightful because it helps us to see the value of thinking rightly about God. For here, the judgment of God is being given over to thinking wrongly about him. And that the suffering that's experienced only serves to entrench that position. And I take it, it's not just thinking the wrong things, you're just believing the wrong things. It's, it's thinking about things wrongly. And I think our new Equip to Serve course is going to be very instructive on this. Because in it, we're going to be looking at whole systems of thought, whole systems of thinking, which are idolatrous. Because they keep us, they prevent us, from thinking rightly about God. You know, they, they stand in opposition to the way that God thinks about the world. But those who are sealed are kept from that. Well, we began by asking, wouldn't Revelation 7 have been a good place to end? But if it had we would have been impoverished of this second perspective. A second perspective in God's purpose and suffering. The same suffering that leads to the purification of believers hardens the hearts of unbelievers. Both perspectives are an encouragement to the saints to patient endurance and faithful witness. The suffering of the believers is not a futile part of their lives, but part of God's purposes for them, and he uses it for their purification and perseverance. But this second perspective in God's purpose and suffering is also a further encouragement to the saints. Because we began with that vision of the multitude who having come out of the great tribulation will serve God and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. We will never get there. We'll never get there unless we have the judgment of God. God's purpose in suffering includes both 
redemption and judgment. Let me pray and then I'll open up to any questions or comments that you might have. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great privilege it is to receive this heavenly perspective on how you view the events um, of this world. And we thank you how we're increasingly putting together um, a multi-perspectival picture of these events. And particularly as we're considering um, your suffering, uh, sorry, the suffering in the world, that it comes under your sovereignty, as part of your purpose, not only for uh, the sanct uh, sanctification of your people, but also the beginning of the judgment on those who will not repent. And we pray that it's both of those that is what is necessary in order for you to um, achieve your creation purposes and ultimately to bring about that wonderful vision of your people dwelling with you. Um, pray this would encourage us to faithful endurance and uh, patient endurance and faithful witness. Amen. Okay. Now is the moment if you would like to ask any questions or comments, either clarify what's been said or. Interesting, while you're thinking, the, the seven, you know, last week we looked at the seven seals in its entirety. The seven trumpets take us to the end of chapter 11. So you might think, oh, would it have been helpful to have done all of it in one go? Interestingly, we do do that in the Crypt Serve. And so I guess that's one of the ways that our different teaching styles complements one another. But in terms of sermons, it's just such a huge amount of material to do all of them. So Tom will, Tom will bring the excursus next week and then the concluding trumpet and tie it all together and summarise. Susie. Mm. Yes. Good question. So question eight, chapter 8 verse 1, uh, silence um, says there, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. The astute of you will notice that that was actually Tom's verse last week, that he... Uh, yeah, decided to end at 7.17. Um, um, but interesting, um, I only say that because it's quite hard to know where to stop because it goes back to the previous comment, is that it seems that the seven seals and the seven trumpets, there is like an interlocking. It's, you know, it's, it's on the back of the seven seals finishing that the seven trumpets start. So in many ways, you have to just keep going. But, um, so... What do we make of the silence? Um, now, in many ways, the short answer is, I don't know. 
the commentator lists like a billion options and then just says, well, we're not told. But I think we can make um, a couple of comments. And the first is that you do sometimes get in the Bible times when all of creation is silent before God. So there's, um, there's an awe of God in terms of um, all of creation is silence before the God who is the creator and sovereign over all things. And you might think that's what's happening here. Although it's interesting that actually creation's been making quite a lot of noise. If you go back to Revelation 4 and 5, what started within the very throne of God came out. So not only the elders and the four living creatures, but all of creation is singing, worthy is, um, is he who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. But if you notice that the silence, this is one of the things that the commentators does say helpfully, the silence isn't on the earth, but it's in heaven. It doesn't seem to be quite that picture, is that basically there seems to be a pause in the vision. Um, which is going on. And so I tentatively suggest that in terms of John's experience, that actually an awful lot's happened with the seven seals. And so this seventh seal opening in their silence is, 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 is almost a pause uh, for uh, reflection. There is this, there's this reprieve from heaven until we then go into... Um, uh, then what follows. Um, so I think I think that's what's happening. So I, I don't think it's that the seventh seal is empty because I think the seventh seal concludes with um, verse 5, peals of thunder, rumbling, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. In other words, it ends with the final judgment and the end of the world. But there just seemed to be this, this reprieve. Is that okay? Yeah? Not much. Nathan. Yeah. Yes. Well, okay, so the question is, are the seven angels in chapter 2, um, the seven angels that are related to seven churches, are they new seven angels? So, unless we can think on our feet together now. So, in my Bible, I've got here seven angels circled with chapter 1, verse 19, which is the seven angels. But the commentator, he just says there are new seven angels. But I can't for the life of me why he thinks there are new seven angels. Um, I mean, in many ways, there's no shortage of angels. It's not like there have to be the seven angels. And whether the seven angels, particularly, they're the ones associated with the seven churches, and that's not in view here. So he doesn't, he doesn't find, a, apart from the fact there's seven, but then the seven comes from the fact there were seven trumpets and the seven seals. So maybe he just thinks, unless there's a reason to go back.
yes, okay, that could be it. So in that sense, the seven is, well, I guess the seven is significant because it, it, it seems to be that whole idea of um, completeness, you know, just as they're like, God created the world in seven days, this is taking us from the final, um, so the, the partial judgments to the final judgments. So that's, the, that's where the seven comes from. Yeah, good one. Time for more? Is everyone happy with this idea of the uh, second perspective and how that fits with the God's purpose of suffering? Thank you. Okay, so are they are they parallel or are they more overlapping? So I think I think it's the comment Tom may actually made when we did a crypto serve, which was helpful, is that they I don't know if put words in his mouth, but I think it's the idea that the seven Trumpets describe the same event that the seven seals describe, but not in a not parallel in terms of the first trumpet and the first seal lines up and the second seal and the second. So I think the broad I think in terms of is a serial, which would be a sequence of events as opposed to parallel, which is a sequence of visions. I think parallel is probably where we want to start and think that actually the they're covering the same period of history, the same event, as it were, but just not in a, they're not parallel insofar as you can line up the first trumpet with the first seal, the second trumpet with the second seal, and the third trumpet and the third seal, which is tempting to do. If you do that, it just, just doesn't work. Also, I think it's a little bit of a red herring, and I think this is why the book of Revelation becomes so difficult for people because you get stuck in all the detail and trying to line everything up and, and the scorpions the same as the, the whatchamacallits and this and so on. And I think one of the ways of reading apocalyptic is to start with the bigger picture, keep your head above water, and then begin to um, look at the detail rather than um, kind of get so bogged in that you're just thinking how is, you know, what lines up with what. So in that sense, I think we can say that, I think we can say that they're parallel descriptions of the same event, but we don't want to over, overdo the parallel. Um, is that okay? And the interesting, because we've got another seven to come, which are the seven bowls. So it'd be interesting. It's one of these things where if it's your first time through, you could just hold on to this. It's like, okay, parallel makes sense, but I'm not convinced. I guess it'd be interesting, whoever's doing the seven trumpet bowls, does that feel like, oh, okay, this is, again, a similar pattern, um, uh, and we can sort of test that. But some of you are more familiar with it, slightly more involved, thinking, like, actually, this is, this is what's going on. It's building up. Our... And uh, just a final comment. I think one of the things that Revelation does so well, and we get this increasingly at the end, is that it's so comprehensive in that 
its descriptions of judgment and final judgment and redemption of final redemption. Nothing's, nothing's, nothing's left um, with question marks hanging over it. Because in many ways you might think the, the demonic stuff, you just think, well, do we need that? But we do need that because the serpent of Genesis 3, we need, that need, he needs to be dealt with. It needs to be an end in order for redemption. And so I think the book is, is, is quite happy to um, be comprehensive in its exploration of, 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 of these last days so that we, we're assured that there's, there's, there's going to be no nasty surprise. Um, uh, yeah. All right, let's leave it there. And we're going to sing again, I Will Sing, The Wondrous Story. <laughs>